Welcome back to Teaching Matters, the University of Edinburgh's hub for discussing, promoting, and showcasing teaching and learning at the university. We are a blog, website, podcast, and maybe most importantly, a small group of people passionate about providing platforms for conversations surrounding teaching and learning. This is the second episode from our Learning and Teaching Conference series. The Institute for Academic Development's own Kathy Bobel ran the conference and did an absolutely smashing job. I'll let her introduce the series. My name's Kathy Bobel. I'm a senior lecturer in student engagement based in the Institute for Academic Development. I was the lead for the University of Edinburgh's 2021 Learning and Teaching Conference, and we attracted a vast range of fantastic presentations covering work from across the university at the conference this year. And I'm delighted to say that the Teaching Matters will be highlighting many of the presentations and some of the contributors who who were sharing their work more widely at the university over the coming weeks and months. We had presentations that covered a wide range of topics, including building community, innovation in science teaching, equality, diversity, inclusion and social justice, experiential place-based and problem-based learning, assessment and feedback to the future, new lessons in digital teaching, insights from hybrid and online learning, student engagement and involvement, and interdisciplinary learning and teaching local and global challenges. So there's something there I hope for everybody in terms of the topics and the spread of great practice from across the university that colleagues are sharing. So I really encourage you to dip in to some of these contributions and I hope that you'll find something that's of interest and relevance to your practice. Today's episode features a story from Nini Fang, a lecturer in counseling and psychology and associate director for the Center of Creative Relational Inquiry at the University of Edinburgh. Nini shares a personal experience of attempting to educate students about colonialism and anti-racism. She treats us to her subjective experience in the third person, eliciting the feelings of what it may have been like to be in the room for this interaction. Nini's story poses larger questions. How can academics respond to these experiences and what role does endurance play? How does one walk the line of educating students on decolonization and anti-racism when these lessons may recontextualize some students' identity while being familiar and deeply personal to others? And how does one manage the divide that may emerge from these differing dispositions? This episode serves as a rare opportunity for an intimate retelling of Nini's experience educating students on racism and colonization, an essential listen for anyone in the learning and teaching environment. Here is Nini's story. I have a story to tell. This is the story of me, a racial other, an East Asian woman getting into trouble as a university lecturer a few years back by teaching two sessions on colonialism and racism on a difference and diversity course as part of a new counseling program at an English university. But first of all, let me tell you that my story begins with another story as told by Rennie Edel Lodge, the author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, who describes her close encounters with the legacy of colonialism as a university student. 
I encounter Rennie's book in the midst of organizing the curriculum for this new course, and her account was not something I could ignore. Little did I know that Rennie's story was to haunt the turn of events that was occurred to me as well when I went ahead delivering the anti-racist curriculum with my students. Let's hear Rennie's story first. It wasn't until my second year of university that I started to think about Black British history. I'd only ever encountered Black history through America-centric educational displays. The household names of America's civil rights movement felt important to me, but also a million miles away from my life as a young Black girl growing up in North London. But this short university module changed my perspective completely. It dragged Britain's colonial history and slave trading past incredibly close to home. My friend, on the other hand, stuck around for a couple of tutorials before dropping out of the class altogether. It's just not for me, she said. I didn't have the vocabulary to raise it with her at the time. But I know now that I was resentful of her because I feel that her whiteness allowed her to be disinterested in Britain's violent history, to close her eyes and walk away. To me, this didn't seem like the information you could opt out from learning. Rennie's words provoked anger in me, calling me to act, to make my course an invitation to students to come close to these historically and culturally related homes as places of unsettlement rather than complacent occupation. The fact that my course was a mandatory one with no possibility of opting out felt precious to me in the light of Rennie's account. I will tell you my story now and I will do so in a third person narrative so you might picture me in the imagery you conjure up or you might picture any other East Asian woman who is clearly neither white nor black and who is clearly not from here. My story begins. It's 10 a.m. on a late autumn day. Nini turns on the lights in a gloomy classroom in a university somewhere in the middle of England. Students from the ethnic minorities are sitting on one side of the room and the white students are sitting on the other. She wants to turn away, to edge towards the door of the classroom and exit. She can excuse herself by saying that she's having a tummy ache and cannot continue with the class, and she's sorry about this. That will not be a lie. The light is still off. English mornings in mid-October are becoming less forgiving when the artificial light has not been turned on to mask the dying summer light flickering from the cloud-patched sky. She cannot see the faces of her students. Part of their faces are cast in some irregular shadows, as if they are wearing a morning veil. She cannot see them, although they are facing her, their eyes peering through the veils of apprehensive uncertainty at her. Her 10 a.m. class is about to start. She hesitates but bumbles towards the light switch and turns it on. The light forces her to see that the classroom is color-coded into the division of light and shadow. The assortment of paler bodies on one side of the classroom 
contrast starkly against the black and a mixture of light to dark brown bodies on the other side of the room. All eyes are staring at her, as if demanding that she decide to which side she belongs with her tofu-toned yellow skin. Are you all comfortable with where you are? Is her best attempt at breaking this painful, paralyzing silence. More silence. She looks around and notices that the two students who had written to her individually to tell her that they will not attend the class today are here. Arms crossed, single brow raised, slumped in their thrones, apparently pleased with the block of white army they have managed to raise before her. You'd better be careful today, they seem to say. Their letters to Nini have made the point certain and clear. It was she who started this unwanted race war against them. As the organizer and teacher on this course on difference and diversity, Xu was the one who had chosen to have on the curriculum not one, but two sessions on the genesis of racism and on the relational potential of counseling and psychotherapy as reparative work in the consulting room. In the previous week, she had had the audacity to read an excerpt from Rennie Edo Lodge, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. In an attempt to open students' eyes to the atrocious legacy of colonialism. That's when all this started, you see. During that first session on racism the previous week, a few students had expressed the view that their history lessons in school had taught them that the overall legacy of the British Empire was positive, despite some unfortunate consequences. One of them went on to say they had believed that the British anthem must be sung with nationalist pride. However, Nini's sessions had led, had made this difficult for them. Nini had nodded in apparent agreement, as she had taken these as the beginning of a reflective process for her class. However, the letter that had arrived after that first session made her see that it was meant as warning, after all. Dear Nini, my point was that you succeeded in raising awareness of othering, but only from the point that it's white people doing it to other races and your material and leading questions were suggestive. The point of the lecture was to realize that there is no race and skin color doesn't make us different, but I was made to feel ashamed because of mine. The Britishness I refer to is my ethnicity, and yesterday I felt as though I couldn't be proud of that in the same way others in the room could be proud of theirs. My example of singing the national anthem was merely an example to aid you in understanding my point. I won't be there next week. Thanks. Here she is. Caught in a tofu-toned middle ground, neither white nor black, neither the doer nor the don'tu. Where do you stand? Whose side are you on? The student's gaze seems to demand her to pick her side. She feels her voice wavering as she attempts to ground herself by drawing their attention to the slide that gives an overview of today's session. Today, we will explore how the external, social, 
interact with the internal, the psyche. We shall also explore how racism can get inside and stay there, and the implications of these for therapy. She can hardly bear to look at her students. She averts her gaze. She feels afraid for reasons she can't quite explain. She presses on to the next slide. Akala, a British hip hop artist and political activist for the Black and minority ethnic communities, takes the screen. It's a comfort to have Akala on the screen behind her, as the students now stare at him rather than at her. She asks the students if they recognize him. To her surprise, the writer of the letter immediately identifies him. Encouraged, Nini takes a few steps forward and asks the students if they know Akala from his music. The writer of the letter replies that they know him from the slides that Nini had dutifully uploaded on the course's online learning space before the session, as per the university's requirements. Nini laughs nervously. That wasn't quite what she had in mind. She carries on as if they were laughing with her rather than at her. Pay attention to the message of the song and how it makes you feel as you listen. She says as she retreats towards the console once again and releases the melodic first riffs of Akala's final enemy. She wonders what the students are thinking as Akala fills the room. We might just have to stay still for long enough to allow something to happen. We might just have to wait, she thinks to herself. During the discussion, the mood in the room softens as people on different sides of the room enter into exchange with one another. A student from the dark side of the class observes that she had not realized Akla was mixed race. The student had assumed his blackness from the picture presented to them. He's gorgeous, though, the student said, provoking soft laughter from the class. A student from the white side of the class shares concerns about the identity confusion Akla must have experienced, given that he does not fit in either box of black and white, and goes on to talk about the importance of cultural sensitivity and of not making assumptions. Nini let the discussion happen without intervening. She reads the fact that they are talking to each other across the room as a promising sign. She feels hopeful that a sense of we is forming and they are now more ready to enter into Franz Fanon's black skin, white mask, after the break. That's not the end of the story, and I will tell you what happens next now as Nini, the presenter for this podcast. You could see that I was trying very hard to get the students to engage with the idea of the other and othering, but that extended beyond the classroom, as I realized that all the time I was also vulnerable to the institutional gaze as its neoliberal subject to be scrutinized. What happened next was not something I had expected. It was even worse than the fact that half of the class, the white students, deserted me after the break, leaving the BAME students to carry on with the session. 
During the break, I noticed that there were only a few students left in the room, mostly from the BAME background. They were sitting around chatting in subdued tones. I approached them, hoping to find out what they had thought of the session so far. They informed me wearily that rather than heading to the university workshop, university coffee shop as usual, some of the students had gone straight to the office of the program director. They also said that they felt sorry this had got so out of hand. The white troop had gone in search of allies sealed in their whiteness, leaving the black students sealed in theirs, to paraphrase Fanon. I was later informed of the nature of their complaint against me in a meeting with the program director and the head of subject, that they, the white students, found the sessions too unsettling and they accused me of fomenting racial tension in class. What exactly have you taught? We never had a situation like this before. They have been a lovely bunch, you know. Such a terrible timing with the NSS, the National Student Survey, coming up. I left the meeting thinking that perhaps I had gone too far this time, as they seem to suggest. I will close my story here as we take a moment to ponder how it might indeed be possible to unsettle the student to just the right degree when inviting them to consider the contingency of power, truth and subjectivity and to think differently and critically about the racial privilege in relation to the daily encounters of racial oppression, injustice or brutality suffered by the racial others that has been missing in the history curriculum. In recent years, the university sector in the UK has been colonized by new managerialism and the associated mechanisms of surveillance and student satisfaction. I have attempted to demonstrate that the ethical response to current malaise in higher education is to open up to vulnerability and unruly curiosity rather than to submit to the surveilling technologies. And yet, when these forms of institutional violence add present-day insult to historical injury, how do we stay still for long enough to allow something to happen? The question is posed by psychoanalyst Stephen Frosch in writing about the virtues of endurance. This waiting constitutes an act of resistance to the cultural and institutional pressure just to get on with things. Staying still is a challenging task when one is affronted by the emotional waves of shame, anger, insecurity and feeling wronged. These arouse an almost irresistible temptation to react and to force everything to an end, as opposed to staying still not acting in or acting out, learning to be full of reverie for oneself. Rather than rush past these obstacles or bow to the endless surveilling technologies against academics, perhaps what we can do here is to wait and to ask what these obstacles know. Perhaps only thus can we open the gate to the ethical imagination of the alternative educational futures. Endurance, as Frosch explains, is not quietus acceptance, but the sense of waiting, 
of opening out oneself to the possibility that really looking into the gaze of the other might alert one to something that one did not already know, something radically new. To stay still long enough to allow conditions to mature through the course waiting for the change to occur, while simultaneously bearing with the possibility that no dream could ever be grander, no hope more utopian. Several days later, after the complaint, Nini received a collective email from several minority ethnic students in her class, informing her of their initiative to create a new society as a response to the sessions. Their society would take promoting black history in higher education as its key mission. They told Nini that it would be open to everyone curious about cultures and communities, and not just colors. Thank you to Nini Fang for sharing her story at the 2021 Learning and Teaching Conference and for allowing it to be translated into this podcast episode. Teaching Matters is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh's Institute for Academic Development. Episodes release every Wednesday. Please follow or subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed today's episode. We'd also be delighted for you to join the conversation. Please feel free to comment on our blog or email us at teachingmatters@ed.ac.uk. Music for today's show is provided by Tune Sounds. Until next time, stay curious.